0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: There's a point, you know, when I was really young, I had actually found her laid out attempting to take her own life and by taking way too many of her prescription medications. And I was the one that had to call 911 and bring her back. And I was pretty upset because, again, it was just me and her. And I always kind of had this lingering sense of that I was going to be left, right? I was already kind of born into a situation where I only had half of my parental group. And then my remaining parent (laughs) was, like, trying to go. And I took that super personally because, and you know, that's things, again, when you're young and you see that, you're just like, well, maybe I'm not worth it. You know, and it's something that, you know, whether it's chemically or learned behavior or whatever, and you're constantly finding yourself in these situations where you should be happy and you're just not. And that's something that I chose to go head up against. And when I was in therapy and my therapist prescribed me, You know, she gave me two options. She goes, I can send you to a psychiatrist. We can get you on some antidepressants or I'm like, I'm not really into that. I'm sure that works for some people, but not really a path that I want to go down. What else do you have for me? And she suggested that I go out and volunteer.
0: Welcome back to another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. This is the podcast where I talk to regular people just like you and me who've discovered one of the secrets to navigating that darkness that can come up from time to time. could be physical darkness, mental darkness, spiritual, or even financial darkness, which is to figure out a meaningful way to use your greatest challenge to help other people. And today's guest is the perfect example of that approach to life, Mr. A.J. Rilan is a serial entrepreneur out of Los Angeles. He's also a dad and a family man who helped to start a global movement that you may have heard about called hashtag lunchbag. OK, long story short, on Christmas 2012, A.J. and his roommates were inspired to give back to their community. So after a couple of false starts, they decided to do something very simple, go and buy some food and some snacks make sack lunches, and just give them out to anybody who was hungry. But they wanted this to be different from that standard, boring, soup kitchen volunteer experience. So they made a party out of it. And they were cracking jokes and breaking out into spontaneous dance moves and having lots of fun. And then they went and hand-delivered the meals that they made to hungry people on the Venice, California boardwalk. Not only did AJ find the experience to be addictive, but it was also very therapeutic and it helped him to get out of his own inner darkness. In this episode, you're going to hear AJ describe how being raised by a single mother with a make it work mentality set him off into his life as an entrepreneur and how her example of saying yes first and then figuring out the details later helped him learn that anything is possible. Even corralling 200 of his friends at the last minute to make sandwiches to feed hungry people. And how hashtag lunchbag transformed from a fun and spontaneous way of giving back to becoming a global movement spanning 100 plus cities. And without further ado, here is Mr. AJ Rilan. Thanks for coming on to the uh, podcast, AJ. As always, I like to start these conversations talking about childhood. I know you grew up in Los Angeles. Do you remember what your favorite toy or activity was as a child?
1: My favorite toy and activity as a child was anything that had to do with the ball. You know, I was an only child and my mom was a single mom. She was an entrepreneur working full time. So I had to get really creative. So not a lot of oversight. I would just go outside, anything I could ride or run around on or play with or throw with the other neighborhood kids was just kind of my vibe.
0: And what was your what was your childhood like? You you obviously, you were you a single, was your mom a single mom or?
1: Yeah, my mom was a single mom. So, you know, we were actually, I was actually born in Detroit, but as long as I can remember, we, we lived in LA. So this is where she ended up. It was just me and her. And then uh, my grandmother moved out here. When I was born to kind of help her only daughter, my grandmother moved here from India to just kind of help raise me. But yeah, I was kind of left to my own devices for the majority of my childhood. And then just, you know, would get super creative and play around with the neighborhood kids where I grew up. Would you describe it as happy or stressful or curious? All of the above. I mean, you know, my mom had a lot of trauma. In her life leading up to my birth, so a lot of that came came with it. But you know, I literally, she—I always tell her she was the definition of the American dream. I, I watched her start a business out of our one-bedroom apartment in uh, South LA and work her way up and, and build it up. But you know, no matter what position she was in financially, she'd always make it a point to send me to a good school. That even if it was out of the way, you know, always grew up going to private school. I always joked that I would go from the hood to the good on a daily basis on the
0: public bus. (laughs) So, yeah,
1: I would say it was it was happy because I I acknowledged from a very early age that nothing really comes without hard work. Then I was exposed to a lot of things that most kids in my neighborhood were
0: not exposed to because of that. What were some of the lessons you remember your mother teaching you as a, as a younger child, moral virtues, anything like that? It's a good question. I actually, it's funny because
1: I I go to therapy with my mom now for some of the things that she (laughs) needs to absolve. And, you know, I think hard work is probably the most important one um, because that's honestly all she really knew how to do. You know, a lot of the emotional things and the the teaching, you know, lessons in vulnerability and, and emotional intelligence weren't really things that I was taught. It was things that I had to kind of seek out later in my life. And, you know, um, there's a lot of things that I had to kind of unlearn from my childhood. And I think those are the greatest lessons that as a parent now I get to look back on and fact check and and remix as a father. But I think hard work was always the thing that was instituted in me from an early age.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a rumor that you were a bit of a entrepreneur yourself as a child. you want to talk about some of the entrepreneurial ventures that you engaged in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember my, my very first time I wanted something. Michael Jordan was the main man, the main athletic figure for me growing up, as was a lot of other people. And I remember when I was six years old, my mom – when I asked her. I was like, "Mom, can I can I have a pair of these Air Jordans?" And she looked at me crazy, you know, because I was going <laughs> to these schools where all these kids had whatever they wanted. And she said, "You want me to spend a hundred or a hundred twenty or whatever, however much they cost at the time, dollars on some shoes? You have some shoes; they work perfectly fine. If you want to get something else, you're going to have to figure out a way to get it." So I had my little piggy bank and. I cracked it open and I went to the local, I think it was a Smart and Final, which is like a hybrid between like a, you know, a, a Ralph's it's and a Costco. Costco. And a <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I bought candy and I I knew that I'm like, what do kids like? And, you know, I, I, I bought a bunch of sour belts and airheads and I just started selling them a quarter a piece, five for a dollar uh, at school.
0: <laughs> and,
1: you know, I saved up enough money mostly in coins, <laughs> to go to the local Foot Locker and get the pair of shoes that I wanted. Then I got in trouble for wasting my money on stupid shit, like shoes. <laughs> but <laughs> that's just the immigrant family mentality. But that's my earliest memory of having to, you know, identifying something that I wanted and figuring out a way how to get it.
0: Wait, you were six years old when you did that? I this? was six when I did that, yeah. And the school allowed you to sell or were you selling in the community?
1: I was no, I was selling it mostly uh, at recess and lunch. These are things that I would just carry in my backpack. wasn't necessarily sanctioned. I mean, it was actually funny that 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 hustle evolved all the way through college. There was just just switching out candy for other stuff.
0: <laughs> but do you remember your sales pitch when you were six? It's value, man.
1: It's like, I mean, when you're six, it's like you want some candy. It's a quarter. You know, kids had lunch money or they had, uh-huh. you know, things that they had. I know I had extra change laying around. I had bus fare because I would take – starting at six, I actually – my mom wasn't able to drive me to, to school and she trusted that I could take the the public bus to school. So I had a couple buses I had to grab and she'd always give me money and I wouldn't always pay. Sometimes I'd sneak on the back. The back of the bus, and nobody would notice me because I was
0: just a kid. <laughs> that must have felt very empowering to be such a young person and and be able to generate money, turn a dollar into, or turn fifteen cents into a dollar like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I had watched so her business was really interesting. So again, Indian immigrant, I remember vaguely that she worked a couple of jobs, minimum wage jobs, and I remember my uncle would always send her Bollywood movies. And then she just kind of flipped that into – she's like, oh, there's people that want to watch these that don't have access to them. Let me rent them out. So back in the day, we had the Yellow Pages. So she took out an ad in the Yellow Pages and, and branded herself as the Bollywood blockbuster. And people would just call her. <laughs> there's no email, no website. And people would just call her and say, hey, um, what you got? And she would. You know, the new releases, and she would just rent them out very inefficiently, not like Netflix or anything. And gradually, I'd watch her grow. People would say, it's mostly, you know, foreign people that were interested in these, and they'd have these tapes and films that were shot wherever they were from that they weren't able to view on an American VHS format. And she, they would say, Hey, do you know where I can convert these? And she would just say that she could do it, and then she would figure it out. So I'd literally watch that. And then eventually people would say, Hey, I have these films from the 50s. Can you convert them to VHS? Or I have, I need 10 copies of these tapes. Or, and she would just say yes and then figure it out. And then as early as I could remember, I think I started when I was like eight or nine, I was just helping her. I was kind of her assistant. She couldn't afford to pay anybody and she needed help. So I would sit there and help her label tapes. You know, uh, Microsoft had launched Microsoft Word Office. I was like, she had no idea how to turn a computer on, but she could do all this other stuff. So I'd have to make labels and make sleeves and shrink wrap. And eventually I learned how to convert the film to the tape. And then eventually people were like, can you edit it? So I'd have to figure out how to edit it on the computer. And these are all things that I was doing by age 10. I was riding my bike to make bank deposits. I was, you know, so it was like at the time I wasn't, looking at it as a lesson i was looking at it like this sucks i just want to go outside and play with my friends or go outside and you know some of the you you see what other people are doing and it doesn't really match up to what you're doing and you're kind of like what the hell you know so that was always what i would do on after school and on the
0: weekends you weren't being paid for this you were just doing it to help out
1: yeah i had to there wasn't really a didn't really have a choice so yeah i would uh my, my payment was the roof over my head, the
0: tuition for <laughs> school and the food that I was on the table. So you had a really comprehensive understanding of money and a dollar and and money coming in and going back out at a very early age. Yeah. And
1: between what she was doing, because she was just a hustler at the end of the day. She had no idea what she was doing. She just fell and got some momentum and just stuck with it. And that's what I kind of, you know, I always tell her, even though she doesn't, I don't think she's fully understands and grasps it but she is the definition of the american dream. So between that and all my extracurricular activities I became a really good salesperson.
0: Mm. You know, I had a relationship with my dad and the same he I saw him to be a very hard worker but when he was around because he was he wasn't around a whole lot but when he was around he always made us do stuff around the house. Go out, cut the grass. Do you know? You just couldn't just sit around with him, and I, and I didn't really like that about him as a young person. I, I get it now as an older person, and I'm curious. How did you see your mother back then? Did you did you appreciate what she was trying to do, or did you just see her as a taskmaster or something along those lines?
1: You know, I just felt bad for her. You know, my mom's very. You know she she has her own stuff, like we all do, but. She didn't really keep it from me, you know all the stuff that she had been through I'm at a very young age so I had to I had to carry a lot of um adult trauma as a young child and just to be completely honest so i mean there i i I think that there was some resentment in there, but there was a clear understanding and the correlation between what the tasks and the duties were and what role I had to kind of play in there so from a very very early age, I, I don't think in the in terms of that relationship, I was ever really the child, if that makes any sense. Obviously, in hindsight, as an adult, and when I look back on everything, you know, they say you have to go through some sense of, you know, the people that go through the most at a younger age have more of a perspective and things that they can apply later in their life. So I'm definitely grateful for all of that. But yeah, there's a lot of
0: responsibility. <laughs> you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's the happinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Your mom's from India, right? She grew up in India? She grew up in India, yeah. How was it embracing your Indian culture? Was that something you were proud of? Do you remember as a kid or yeah. were you kind of embarrassed?
1: No, I, yeah, it was um, – there weren't a lot of Indian people. I mean like the neighborhood that I grew up in was you know, predominantly black and brown you know, but it's my mom, you know, like was obviously Indian immigrant, didn't really understand American culture at that. You know, but then when, whenever I'd go to the schools, they were majority white. So my perspective mm-hmm. was kind of all over the place. So, you know, as a, as a young kid, I actually got kicked out of preschool. Um, because I, I got kicked out
0: preschool.
1: Like, not not not. Let me say, I didn't get kicked out. <laughs> it was I got severely reprimanded. Preschool. But it's like okay. you know, one of my earliest memories of preschool, pre-K, kindergarten. It's all kind of a blur. Was getting made fun of because I was darker than everybody. You know, so right. one kid started this whole thing, and he got all the kids in this in the class behind it about telling everybody that I was born in a fire or I was born in a toaster. So there was, when you're that young and people are saying that to you, even if it's, you know, kids are mean and cruel and say crazy things, but that stuff really sticks with you, right? These are your formative years where you're really starting to develop your self-esteem and your self-confidence. So I always knew that I was different in every kind of place and kind of forces you to kind of become a bit of a chameleon and trying to conform and adapt to other people's stuff, so and then, on top of the fact that again, my mom was so focused on working, uh, my grandma lived with me, so she came and she was she recently passed away and I you know it was kind of the the father figure you know in hindsight that I thought I never had, but that was always there, but my grandmother never really conformed to American culture either, you know she lived here for as long as I've been alive um, over you 35, 36 years and never took it upon herself that she needed to learn how to speak English. She was a very religious person that didn't really teach anything, right? She was just meditating all day. She didn't really take shit from people. So she would anytime like somebody came around with a bad energy or bad vibe, she made it known in her native tongue, didn't really care. So it was interesting, and so my understanding. And now, as I'm an adult, and I have friends of all backgrounds, including a lot of Indian friends now too, I there was a gap between what I learned growing up in my household versus what the actual reality is, you know, of an entire group of people. So it's something that I obviously identify as as a part of my like identity. But I'm learning again now that I have kids that are mixed race as well, because my wife is not Indian. But she's really made it a point to, you know, learn the culture and institute, you know, holidays like Holi and Diwali and things that I didn't even practice growing up. We didn't do any of that stuff. We didn't do Christmas. We didn't do Thanksgiving. I'd have to go to other people's houses. And that's where I kind of learned all that. So pretty straightforward, you know, in terms of in my, in my home. But I think that as I get to, Teach my kids. I'm I'm relearning or learning for the first time a lot of things, including my own. Where I'm from.
0: Were you meditating when you were young with your grandmother? Um, was there an no. altar set up in your house with gurus and stuff?
1: There was an altar set up in my house with gurus and stuff. Um, I just knew that they were my grandma's gurus. It was like their the lineage of them. And like every morning and evening, she would do this uh, ceremony that was about thirty minutes, where she would play some songs. Have her little Tali with her, with the incense and the flame and the flowers. And it was something that I would participate in, but I never really knew what it was about and what we were doing, which I think is most kids and religion, period. It's just whatever your parents are doing, you're doing. So didn't really understand it at the time. Never really meditated. I think meditation is something I really took up in the last, you know, more recent years.
0: Did you speak, uh, was it Hindi or what was her native tongue?
1: Uh, her, her native tongue was Hindi. So I was, uh, again, in order to communicate with her, I had, to, I had learned the language, which is, is great at an early age because you can pretty much speak anything, like whatever you, you can pick up things. So uh, up until her, her recent passing, uh, that was the our primary mode of communication. And she was the only person that I spoke to Hindi with.
0: So later on, you left Los Angeles after high school. You went to, uh, I believe it was UCSB? Yep. UC Santa Barbara. Not too far. From school? Yeah. About an hour and a half north. Was that a situation where you still had to kind of hustle and and make money to pay for your own schooling? You know – Partly, but, you know, uh, I mean, to to kind
1: of fill in the gap, like I watched her grow that business out of our one bedroom apartment into Mm -hmm. like something substantial, you know, like she was able to Mm -hmm. buy a home. She was able to put me through, you know, one of the better high schools, Loyola High School here in L.A. And even though UCSB is a public school and the the tuition isn't as crazy as, you know, private school like USC or something like that, she took care of everything. I never had to worry about my tuition. I mean, all the extracurricular things on my basic room and board and tuition were were paid. And, you know, again, in hindsight, I'm very grateful for that. But I I continued to hustle. My hustle in in college is actually really funny. I I had me and a friend had met someone in China who was uh, essentially running one of those manufacturing factories for a lot of like luxury companies and Nike and stuff like that. And we basically developed a relationship where she would just, we would, She would email us what she had in stock, things that she wasn't supposed to be selling out of the back door. We would pay them, we you know send her money, and we would essentially sell them. Uh, He went to Berkeley, I went to UCSB, and we would just you know whether it's handbags that we would sell to like the local sorority girls, or you know Jordan full circle. Right, my first thing that I ever tried to make was a buy was a pair of Jordans, and we were importing these Nikes and. Selling them in you know parking lots at malls and stuff like that, so a lot of out of the trunk hustling. But you know we did pretty well. And our whole our whole sales pitch was, you know, it was either going to be half of what the retail cost was or double what we paid for it. So somewhere where we can kind of create the value. But you know, nobody asked us any questions and. We, uh, we built a, g- a pretty good business, but pretty, you know, right after college or, you know, halfway through college as you're going through and educating yourself, you're like, oh, what I'm doing right now isn't going to scale very well. So I need to start
0: thinking about what my life is going to look like from a career standpoint. And what did that, what was your vision for yourself at that point in time? You know, I had no idea. And that was that was kind of
1: a scary moment for me coming out of school. I was always good student. I'd always find a way to get, get, get good grades. I'd say it was book smart, but then especially when I got to college, I wasn't really, you know, I just knew how to get the grade. You know, I knew how to get the highest possible grade without putting in very much effort. And that was kind of a hard lesson that I had to face, you know, say as I got into adulthood that you can't just hustle or sweet talk or sell your way through life. And I think that, um, you know, I would whether it was studying with the right people or sitting next to the right people during the exams, you know or creatively googling when I'd have to submit my assignments, I was just always trying to find a way to hustle the system to achieve whatever the thing was and you know for for a moment, you know I'd lost kind of the sight of like the the work part, and I never had a particular passion all the work that I'd done leading like actual formal work was kind of helping my mom and I built like a resentment towards her and her business and not really having a childhood and kind of being the man of the house emotionally and physically and financially in some cases. So I mean there is kind of all that all that stuff that I had to carry with me and the irony is when I came out of school she needed a lot of help with her business cuz you know while I was gone she had made some some bad decisions and brought some not so good people into her life and I felt obligated to help kind of clean that up and coupled with the fact that I didn't know where I wanted to go or where I wanted to work or well, if I wanted to work for anybody. So I was able to help turn her situation around and I was actually able to retire her within my first two years out of college because I took over. I knew every, I know the ins and outs of her business. So I was able to, to patch things up and kind of create a good life for her and, you know, pretty good life for myself out of school because I was the boss, you know, when you're the boss you you get to you get to do stuff. What was the business called? It was called MG Digital. a very boring <laughs> company, but she essentially <laughs> evolved into production services and renting out, you know, broadcast equipment and stuff like that. That was actually kind of more my doing, but her blo- her Bollywood blockbuster was more of a tagline for uh, her for the first business that I mentioned and it was it stood for Movie Gallery. And then when everything kind of started going digital, it evolved into MG Digital.
0: So that was your first sort of uh, post-college entrepreneurial stint. What was your mental state like at that point? Having, I guess, gone through everything you've you've gone through dealing with MG Digital and your mom and that relationship. And I'm assuming your dad is not in the picture at this point. So what what were you feeling mentally? I think that you know, like most early 20-somethings, it's just,
1: you know, it's like a mixture of I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm doing something and you don't really have time to think, right? You're applying all of the, I was applying all of my lessons that I learned, whether it was through helping her or just selling whatever I was selling, whether it was candy or purses or Jordans or there's a brief stint in high school where I was like selling weed that lasted not very long but it's just all these experiences kind of aggregate and you're just you know trying to figure out you don't quite feel like an adult yet you know but you're you know you're over 21 and you know you're technically an adult and you know I had a very fun 20s I would say just in terms of my social life I spent a significant portion of my time you know out and about in the streets and you know parties and nightclubs and all that stuff, like a lot of LA people. So, you know, when you're filling up your social and your professional calendar and you don't really have any responsibilities, you know, every once in a while you kind of come to a checkpoint with yourself and you're like, what the hell am I doing? You know, I was always, I've always asked myself that question from a very young age because, you know, especially not having a father as a man or as a boy, at least for me, it was always something that I just didn't know. I didn't know if I was doing it right or whatever it was because I never really had a consistent positive male role model in my life. Um, the closest thing that I had was an uncle that moved here when I, you know, when I was young and he ended up being a complete dud and actually a complete not good person. He was very physically abusive to my mom and my grandmother, you know, and it wasn't until that I got big enough that I could had the courage to kick him out. And to this day, he's just kind of a thorn in my side. But to me, it was just kind of like always feeling this lingering feeling of being alone. But I was also on the surface in the world, extremely social and really going out of my way to connect with any and everybody. And kind of what I mentioned earlier in terms of becoming a chameleon making it so that I can go into any setting and fit right in and people would like me and invite me places and include me in trips and activities and anything. So I don't think that that's unique to me but that's just my personal kind of experience. So knowing that, you know, what I was doing straight out of the college wasn't my long-term calling, you're you're constantly asking yourself like why am I here? What is my purpose?
0: Did you have a why at that point in your 20s? In terms of, was it, I'm going to make as much money as possible. I'm going to get as many girls as possible. I'm going to start a new business. Like what was your operating why at the time? I
1: think it was the why was all external, right? Everything was kind of outside in and nothing was, so I didn't have to deal with what was kind of inside out, right? I think that when I look back on my early mid going into my late twenties, there wasn't really a why. It was just to have fun. And aggregating as many all of the above that you mentioned as possible as like <laughs> measures of success that you know I, you know you, you pretty quickly realize. I think my big wall that I hit was when I was twenty eight years old, and I was you know I was twenty eight. I was uh, still running her thing. I tried a couple other things, you know, tried to dip my toes in the production world with like the new wave of three D. That didn't work out. You know, I started the consult. I started doing some work at CAA, which is a talent agency here. They were incubating technology companies, and that was something new that I was kind of doing. It was fun and cool and shiny, Bali. But I kind of hit this wall when I was 28. You know, and I started going to therapy, and I started doing all of this work and reading all of these books, and joining different types of like workshops. And I kind of made a goal for myself halfway through that year. Through all of the work that I'd kind of been doing that I, some things needed to change. So, you know, when I was 28, I think it was 2012, I uh, made a goal that by June 1st, I, I wasn't going to be working on anything or doing anything that, you know, wasn't really the best use of my time and was actually going to clear up some space to explore other things that were more in line with, with who I was.
0: What did that wall feel like? If you could just give us a couple of tangible examples.
1: It felt like more frequently, you know, like the feeling that I – it's more of a feeling, right? It's like you're going places, you're you're in settings or with people or just in overall situations, whether it's work or social or romantic and you're – you kind of start to notice a pattern in your thinking and you start to notice – if you're introspective at all, and I, I would put myself on, on the extreme <laughs> introspective level, you're, you're the enough times of asking a question why you have to start looking for answers and you have to start doing some semblance of work. And, you know, whether it's, I'm, I'm lucky to have. Built a lot of great relationships with some really amazing and successful people. And, you know, I've never really had a problem sharing. I've never been closed off. So the more I talk about some of the things that would come up for me in certain situations, occasionally I'd get some really good advice. And those little winks and those little people that are kind of pointing you in a direction, obviously that's only part of it. The other part of it is you actually have to follow through on it. You start to go on this discovery journey and you start You know, seeking out unbiased sources of inspiration or mirrors, you know, whether it's through a therapist or through reading books that are, you know, it's sort of getting really into emotional intelligence and really tapping into those feelings and trying to embrace them rather than run away from them, which is something that I'm, you know, in hindsight, very, very grateful for.
0: So I take it you were experiencing some sense of depression and uh, maybe low self esteem or emptiness inside.
1: All of that. I mean, my mom and a lot of her side of the family suffers from depression. So my entire life, my mother was on antidepressants. And, you know, there was a, there was a point, you know, when I was really young, uh, I had actually found, found her laid out, you know, attempting to take her own life and by taking way too many of her prescription medications. And I was the one that had to call 911 and bring her back. And I was pretty upset because again, it was just me and her and. I always kind of had this lingering sense of that I was going to be left, right? I was already kind of born into a situation where I only had half of my parent, my parental group, and then my remaining parent (laughs) was like trying to go. And I took that super personally because, and you know, that's things, again, when you're young and you see that, you're just like, well, maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe I'm not. You know, and it's something that, you know, whether it's chemically or learned behavior or whatever, and you're constantly finding yourself in these situations where you should be happy and you're just not. And that's something that I chose to go head up against. And when I was in therapy and my therapist prescribed me, You know, she gave me two options. She goes, "I can send you to a psychiatrist. We can get you on some antidepressants, or you know, I'm I'm like, I'm not really into that. I'm sure that works for some people, but you know, not really a path that I want to go down. What else do you have for me?" And she suggested that I go out and volunteer.
0: Was that because you had seen your mother abuse medication that you didn't you didn't want anything to do with medication?
1: I wouldn't say, I mean, uh, other than the the story that I just shared, other than that, I don't really think she abused it. I, I think that it didn't serve its purpose for her. And I realize, and to this day, you know, I'm, I'm now actively working with her and she's in a much better place now, but that's because of a lot of the work that, you know, I've done and I've helped her, you know, introduced her to and then that role reversal. But I think it was more so like here's this person who clearly has a condition who's taking these medications and they're not working. And Now, if she doesn't take them, there's reactions on the other side of it. So It's kind of like a, I didn't really want to build a depend, dependence on something that wouldn't necessarily help me deal, cope with what I was going through.
0: How did you find a therapist that you connected with?
1: I was on a birthday trip for a friend of mine and we were flying back and i was sitting next to him and you know guy not that much older than me super successful you know tech entrepreneur one of the things that we had really connected on is we were both you know only childs to single moms and you know we've been friends for years and one of the things that we would always talk about is our crazy moms and what was kind of driving us and you know he had he had built something really amazing and he was telling me About some of the things that he was working on, and somehow we got on the topic of therapy, and he was sharing some of the revelations that he was having in therapy. And I told him how awesome that was. And then he had actually asked his therapist for a recommendation for me. She ended up connecting me with her daughter, who was a therapist. So, yeah, that was in 2011, 2012, I would say. 2011, I think that was was that trip. And he, uh, yeah, I actually, I don't go to her regularly anymore, but I still speak to her often and I actually credit her for a lot of the perspective that I was able to, to gain from our time together.
0: awesome and i want to talk about the volunteering but before we get into that there's one other piece of the puzzle that i'd like to go into which is meeting your dad i know that after your after you started therapy you were inspired to go and connect with your father for the i believe the first time in your life can you yeah. talk about that a bit
1: yeah i was in um it was again that year that that 28th year 2012 after i kind of made that decision to Unload things that I didn't really want to spend time on, or people that I didn't really want to spend time with. I I continued my soul searching journey. And and part of that was I was, you know, in a social setting. And, you know, some people I didn't know that well just started asking me questions, you know, where are you from? Where's your mom? Where's your dad? Where's your this? Where's your that? And, you know, then the the topic comes up like, oh, I I don't know my dad. Like, we didn't grow up together. He goes, oh, well, where is he? I'm like, ah, I don't know. I, I was born in Michigan, so last I would assume he might still be there, but I really have no idea. And you know, they just kept asking me questions, like, you don't want to meet your dad? Like, you never wanted to, like, try? And you know, and I'm like, no. I mean, I've I've I had my own answers. I I had been answering these questions my whole life, right? It's like, well, why? It's not like I had him and he like I met him and he left, or I he was in my life up to a certain point and then he just disappeared or passed away or something. It's like. You know, I literally never had him. You know, I never had that figure. So it's not like I miss it. It's just all I've known is life without him. And then, you know, the way someone, one of the people, she framed the question like, you don't want to know why you do that thing you do or why there's a glass ceiling in your in your life or why your pinky toe or something like physical looked the way that it did. And, and, it, and something resonated for me at that point. I was like, you know what? That actually might help fill the gap, right? Like at least putting a name to the face. And, you know, I never had any brothers or sisters, wondering if that's even a thing. And so I, you know, agreed to kind of go that route and do some discovery there. And, you know, pretty easily was able to kind of locate him. And he, in fact, was still in Detroit. And, you know, the stories that my mom had told me about him were not the best. They painted him in a pretty... Pretty pretty bad light. I think as bad as it can kind of get, to be honest. So you know, but you know, at this point, I'm a man. I have questions that I that I need to get answers, and like you know, I I have my mom's version of everything, and I just thought I'd make the trip. So yeah, I made the trip to go meet him, and I had a goal of getting three answers, three questions answered. Uh, First thing was I wanted to know what he looked like, and which I felt like I could get pretty quickly. Uh, The second thing was you know. Does he married? Does he have any kids? AKA, do I have any siblings? And third, I wanted to kind of give him the opportunity to, you know, share his side of the story, whether it's the same and he's changed or maybe giving him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, so I set up this meeting with him, which he didn't actually know was happening because I found out he was like a photographer and I like set up a fake consultation under a fake name just to get the meeting with him because I didn't know how he would – react to me some stranger calling him and saying that he's his son and wants to meet him based on all the things that I heard, so did he not know about you? I believe he did know about me because they were together for a couple of years before she left um with me,
0: so what was that like being in that room waiting for him to show up? I mean, it was pretty
1: tense right I mean I, I you know the I remember the day pretty pretty vividly i you know I showed up. I only had one real photo of my childhood and it was like of me and my mom. It was like one of those Sears photos and it was in my wallet. So I like, I just remember landing in Detroit, renting a car, going to Staples and like photocopying my picture to be in like something that I could like fold in my pocket. And I went to the address. I was very nervous and obviously, and I I got there and I, Knocked on the on the office door and he opened the door and it was him. So like, question number one was was asked was answered immediately. What, what does this guy look like? You know, do the little small talk thing. Oh, where are you from? Did he okay. recognize you right away, or did no, he look no, at you no? Like, no, he had no didn't know idea who you were. Uh, no clue. Yeah, he was just being nice because I might buy something from him. You know. So I was sitting there, nice guy, seemed pretty nice, and they sat there and I just asked him. You know where you know did the small talk thing. Where are you from? Oh, cool. Are you married? Do you have any kids? He goes, no, I'm married. I don't have any kids. So pretty. You know, within a minute, I I know what he looks like, and I know that I don't have any brothers or sisters that I know of. And then starts asking. We get to the business part, and he starts asking me about my wedding. That wasn't anywhere near the truth, and I just kind of told him, like, hey, man, I'm not I'm not here for a wedding. I'm here actually because, uh, you know, I just searching for something and I was just – when I pulled out the picture and I I, I handed it to him and I, he opened it up and I'm like, do you know who this woman is? And he takes out his glasses out of the drawer and we're sitting on like a desk. He's sitting behind the desk. I'm sitting in front of it and he's, uh, he's looking at it for what felt like a really long time and he kind of looked at me and he goes, yeah, I know her. He goes, how do you know her? I'm like, that's my mom. And then he kind of looks at the picture and then he looks at the kid in the picture and then he looks at me and then he looks at the kid and then he says my name. <laughs> he says like my full name. And I'm – at this point, I'm like – and he just starts sobbing, crying. And I didn't know whether to be angry or happy or sad or – I didn't know what to feel. I just know that next thing I know, he was like sobbing on my shoulder. He like hugs me and I'm pissed. I'm I th- Mainly, I think I'm just upset. And I sit down, like you know, and he's asking me all these questions about my life, and I'm like, well, before we get to that point, like, there's a gap that I need to fill here, and you know, this is why I'm here. This is why after 28 years, I'm, I'm here to go out of my way to meet you because these are some of the things that I'm experiencing in my life, and I'm hoping that you can just help shed some light on some things. Uh, let's let's start. Like, what happened? you know like what happened with you and my mom with me and you um and then you know he pretty quickly shut down that ended pretty quickly and it's none of your business and shortly thereafter i was asked to leave so that was pretty anticlimactic for me at the time the most uh, the funny part of that was actually i when i walked out and i was like you know dealing with all the emotions, I realized that I left my BlackBerry inside and it was charging. So that was really awkward. But other than that, it was... You <laughs> had, to, uh, go back. had so to go back and get I the BlackBerry. I had to be Berry. like, yeah, no, yeah, sorry, dude, I, I left my phone in there. And I was just, you know, in Detroit, it's kind of a, not the best city. So I was just driving around. So I'm like in Detroit, is <laughs> already a pretty dark place at the time. hadn't fully recovered <laughs> from the recession. Just met my dad. He affirmed that he didn't want me. At least that's what I thought.
0: And, yeah. So that was that. So did that impact your mental state even further in that 28th year?
1: Yeah, it did. Actually, things got kind of darker from there. I had my, I think that fall, I had my fifth friend commit suicide. So that was, you know, I mean, not to just pile it on here, but yeah, I mean, I went through this phase where I like, I I hit the eject button from all the stuff that I had going earlier in the year. I got into some new ventures, which are always exciting, you know, tried my hand at like an actual like relationship, like a girlfriend type of situation. I met my dad and it's like, and then everything just starts to kind of like unfold and what goes up must come down. And that's when my therapist got really worried and offered me like the two options uh and then you know the volunteering thing was something that she had kind
0: of pushed and you tried volunteering that thanksgiving at a soup kitchen what was that experience like
1: yeah i had a couple friends that just randomly invited me and i was like great this is all my to do meanwhile i'm out in the world completely pretending like everything's fine i'm not like. Sad. Mm-hmm. Nobody's worried about me. I'm just normal, <laughs> you know, but like internally, it just, you know, it gets dark. So uh, a couple of friends invited me to the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving, which is like designated day of giving. I'd already been for a couple months, had it on my to do list. And she, you know, like we went and it wasn't the best experience. And, you know, it made me feel even worse because, you know, and while I'm kind of in my woes, I'm not really programmed to be grateful. And present. So I'm like, now I'm feeling even worse because here I am. And there's people that are really out here that need help that aren't in the best place. And the volunteer experience overall just wasn't good. The way that the volunteers were kind of being handled, the way that the volunteers were handling the people that we were feeding, like it just, I just left feeling kind of gross and, and guilty. Uh, so that was kind of my first like real experience, you know. I, I I volunteered before, but it was more around a prerequisite to finish something or to graduate from somewhere or to get into a program or community service hours and things that were just, you know, with no real intention. So that was kind of my first foray into it.
0: So was the medication looking better after that, or were you thinking I no. just got to give it some more, some more? Uh, no,
1: I, I just options. I just like you know it's, it's a it's a it's a combination of. This too shall pass right, or you know just kind of deal with it on a day by day, so I think it kind of came back around that Christmas, which is like day two designated day of giving,
0: well, your friend Felicia inspired something around that, right? talk a little bit about her,
1: yeah, you know, had an old friend not in touch anymore, but she was uh was looking for a Volunteer. It, it was a it was a it was a kind of a perfect storm actually. So I'll, I'll start with Christmas Eve. I was living with uh, my roommate, good friend, best friend. He had come home with another one of our friends. So uh, William is was my roommate. My other buddy JD. We were all friends. They had gone out to Target that Christmas Eve and they kind of showed up and bought up. They just came back to the house with a bunch of toys and I was like, "What are you guys going to do?" I'm just sitting and sulking on the couch watching TV. And they're like, we're going to wrap all these toys up and we're going to go to the children's hospital and hand them out to the kids. And I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. So I just kind of jump in, start wrapping toys with them. We head down to the children's hospital with the hopes of passing toys out to kids. And it's like 7.30 on Christmas Eve and we get to the front desk and they're like, you can't just go handing out toys to kids. Like... I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So they're like, you can leave them under the Christmas tree and we'll make sure that they get them. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. We did our good deed, but something kind of felt incomplete and missing. So, you know, I, you know, didn't think of anything of it, went home, they went out. I woke up the next morning. At this point, I was waking up super early and I was like, I got to do something, right? Like, I can't just keep feeling like this. And I remembered seeing her post something on Facebook. Multiple times on a super small scale, making like 10, 15, 20 meals, and then posting like a Bible quote or something along with it around like the, you know, just what she was doing. I was like, I can do that. I can find people to feed. Why don't I just go to the store? So it's like six in the morning. I go to the local grocery store and I just, just, I buy enough food to feed a hundred people. And It was like the criteria, it was like the lunch that your mom would make you in middle school that would make other kids jealous. So like the premium chips, the premium fruit snacks, the good cheese, the good meats, the the good bread, the Capri Sun water, Hershey's kisses, you know, whatever. And then went home and, you know, they were still there. uh, Will and JD were there just getting up and getting moving. And then we all just invited a couple people over and started very inefficiently making these meals together and uh, sharing what we were doing on social media.
0: Do you remember how much you spent?
1: I spent $126.42.
0: And you got your 100 meals out of that?
1: I got my 100 meals out of that. Yeah.
0: And then what what happens? What do you do with those meals?
1: We made all these meals. We, you know, Will started uh, writing up all these Christmas cards, which was a great touch. And we just hopped in the car. Play, you know, we were listening to music the whole time. We were, you know, drinking some champagne. We're having a good time. It was kind of a fun activity and ended up being five of us. We rolled down to Venice, Santa Monica, passed these meals out and kind of had this amazing feeling individually. And we all ended up spending Christmas night together and having dinner together and just kind of talking about the day and how it made us feel. And at that point, I kind of understood why I was told to go out and do something be of service and be selfless and, you know, do that type of thing. It kind of clicked for me. And, you know, second nature, we shared what we did on social media and we jokingly called it hashtag lunch because we were making fun of hashtags and it rhymed with lunch bag. And then we got <laughs> such a positive feedback from our followers and our friends that we decided to run it back. And long story short, we started doing it. It became something we outgrew my apartment. And I ended up owning a restaurant um, somewhere in between there. And we started, we outgrew the apartment and started doing it at the restaurant, made it establish a consistency and a cadence of making sure we did this the last weekend of every month in LA. And in the past few years, it's something we've done up until the current quarantine situation every last Saturday of a month in LA and it's spread to over 150 cities all over the
0: world. So going back to the first couple, did you envision that this thing could potentially grow to 150 cities and I'll do this indefinitely for the next eight years or was it just something you were just taking it literally month by month and you'd have to kind of talk yourself into doing it some months and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, more kind of the latter. I mean, at the, in the beginning, I never really spoke, every, all of us had our own different intentions and we all contributed to the success of this movement. But for me, I knew what my secret Motive was, which is kind of servicing this de- deficiency that I believe to have had. And look, I, the 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 idea was: look, this is fun. We've we've taken something that's not original and put our own spin on it and made it something that's social. And it was just a fun thing. Just like again, anything that's new that you're into that you enjoy. That the, the motto is: if it's fun, keep when you know. If it's fun, keep doing it. You know, within reason and responsibility, obviously, but. That was kind of the the, the motto, but it, it's exciting once you see other when you create something and you see other people, and that's what people don't realize about the power of social media. Or at least at the time, it's like anybody's watching you, right? You don't have to have a you know you have ten friends or followers or ten million. You have the ability. You're at least exposing what you're doing to a handful of people, and you know maybe one of them might be inspired. So that was wasn't like we're gonna go and build this big bad nonprofit. It was. Just cool to see. It's like magic, right? You create something in your brain, and you you apply a little bit of consistency to it. And if it's good, other and other people like it. You know, they start mimicking you and emulating you, and are inspired by what you're doing. And I think that's the fuel that kind of kept the whole thing going. Because here's this activity that, you know, unfortunately, there's people that are experiencing hunger everywhere and there's people that have a means to at least quench that hunger in the short term. And I would say the mission and the message evolved especially over that first year because you're thinking about, you know, am I what am I actually doing here? And you know, you're spending real time communicating with people, whether it's people you haven't talked to in a while or people that you're just now meeting through places like Twitter and Instagram and kind of teaching them what you're what you're doing but at the same time empowering them to do it on their self and then quickly realizing that what brought you there in the first place, that you're not alone. And a lot of people are experiencing very similar things. We don't need to get into how granular everybody's life is because nobody has time to to do that. But you realize that we're all going through some sense of inferiority or sadness or depression or mental health issue. And what we discovered was – If you're in a place where you can help somebody and you do it without expecting anything in return, you get to experience the feelings of gratitude and you get to experience being present. And you realize that, you know, out of all the 170 religions in the world, there's a reason why they only have one thing in common, and that's help each other out, help your, you know, help out your fellow man or woman and do unto others. And, you know, I'm not a very religious person, I've become spiritual in my practice. And that was kind of a, a big aha moment for me, which is in order to really, truly feel alive, you have to make things around you better. And that to me became a life worth living. And that, you know, from that realization forward, I've lived my life that
0: way. As a serial entrepreneur, I'm sure you can look at a bag of candy and you can see profit. You can look at Bollywood tapes and see profit. Did you have to keep yourself from making this into another entrepreneurial venture in some way and like keep it as a voluntary thing that you just did out of the goodness of your heart? I think
1: that there was a lot of – a lot of the success, at least for my contribution to all of this, had to do with a lot of that entrepreneurial experience, right? I mean – you know, I I I still question whether or not you know I think think I think we went the right route by becoming an official nonprofit. The goal was never to become a nonprofit, or you know I didn't even know what that meant and what it takes to actually run a nonprofit and how hard it really actually is. It's very extremely difficult, but I guess you don't really know what's what until you actually experience it for yourself. But I think applying a lot of those marketing initiatives and things that I've learned from for-profit businesses and then you know realizing that there's a huge opportunity just in general i mean there isn't a profit generating model here we we have probably 50 active monthly chapters you know 150 cities deep we have all these corporations that have kind of taken our model and you know, whether it's launching a product or doing a team building effort or a marketing or PR thing, we've partnered with some of the biggest brands in the world to kind of help them achieve their goals. But I think now, fast forward, and we were probably a little bit early. But there's this whole social enterprise thing that everybody's kind of chasing after. Whether it's for the right reasons or it's just because they know that young people, specifically, tend to connect with brands that are that are doing good and making the world better. So. All that to say, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. It's been a fun journey. It's been a tough, difficult, hard-to-maintain, sustained journey. Um, I mean, you've been around for a while. You have your own things that you've kind of created. So you, you know how fun things are to start and how cool it is to watch them catch fire and grow and for other people to get behind the idea. But most people don't see the amount of thought and work and emails and jam sessions that go into just maintaining it. And that can get super draining pretty quickly.
0: Well, I know in my experience, I've done a, re- a lot of really great things and I've wanted to quit often. What keeps you going <laughs> in this? Because it's still going. I
1: think that, you know, first of all, being an entrepreneur, period, is you, you have to develop that muscle of the keep going muscle, right? The, you know, <laughs> the, I, you, you, the the fuck it, pardon my French, but you just got to, you have to, because it's it's, it's glamorized in pop culture, but I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. It's like you're getting, you're <laughs> getting beat down on a weekly basis in some way, shape or form. I think for me on, on the charitable and the philanthropic front, it's that renewed energy, right? Because we, you know, again, not intentionally from the outset, but because we originally, you know, Decided that, look, no matter what, this is something that's going to happen on the last weekend of the month. This is something that we're going to do to service our own community. And we came up with a language for all of our chapter organizers across the country and the world that they should establish some kind of cadence because at the end of the day, we have our own buckets that we need to fill up. And those buckets get filled when we help other people fill their buckets up. So, you know, even if it's for two hours a month that I get to experience the joy and see. All of the different people of the multiple different backgrounds and different ages and tax brackets and races come together in this party social setting to prepare what's now 1500 meals every get go, every go around that we do this and get to witness bringing that community together and then almost immediately go and see the looks on the people's faces that are on the receiving end of the meal, that are on the receiving end of the evolution of that Christmas card that I shared with you from the first time that we did it into a handwritten love note acknowledging the humanity of the the receiver but also the person that's writing the note, right? The the, the gap gets bridged and that was the feeling that was missing when we went to go drop off those toys to those kids. It's actually realizing that it doesn't take a lot to put that energy out there and how it's almost selfish (laughs) to help other people because of the feeling and the sense of gratitude that you get and how important it is to just be that in your everyday life and using these meal preparation and these love notes and these one-off events to kind of exercise that muscle. and remind yourself how important it is because I know I, I look I'm I'm still growing. You know, I'm not six now. I still have my low frequency days. I still have my, you know, what's in it for me moments. But I, I I'm able to kind of remember and practice, wait a minute, I've already learned this lesson. <laughs> I know where I need to go back. I need to the the acknowledgement portion is, is super important. And I'm just grateful that I was able to kind of go down that path at an early age because now I feel like I have an unfair advantage in everything else that I do. And I 100% applied these principles. I mean, it's, you know, but I always say giving has given me everything that I've got. I now have a beautiful family. I have, you know, an amazing partner and a wife. I have uh, two beautiful children. And all of these things are things that I could have have, ever fathomed. And I have, like, I'm. Actually, now, in businesses and you know investments and things that are aligned with who I am as a person and things that really add value to society that that are going to bring that sense of freedom and the comfort that I a comfortable life that i want to live and it all comes from this place of adopting a service driven mindset, so it's cool to watch the world come together and evolve and kind of adopt this similar mentality, whether it 's for PR marketing or sincerely sincere in its intent, but I'm excited for the future, man
0: for the people who aren't familiar with hashtag lunchback, what are some of the rules or tenets of the organization when you guys come together what 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 is it what's involved?
1: Yeah, so obviously this can all be found on on hashtag lunchbag period, and we actually have a really fun music video that we made. Yes, I'm rapping with
0: with Snoop, yeah, Yeah, Snoop
1: Snoop Double Gs in there. But yeah, the the whole I mean the whole idea is it's this A to Z experience, right? Again, I never would say that feeding people that are experiencing hunger in a local community is this mind groundbreaking concept, but our view on it is it's this A to Z experience, right? I mean, we took all of the elements of a party. And all of the things that, you know, you traditionally do when you think of charity, whether it's like, you either have to quit your life to become a lifelong social worker or you have to be a rich philanthropist who's paying 10 to $20,000 to go attend that fancy social gathering gala at the fancy hotel. And our thing was like, look. You can eliminate the time commitment. So our, our experience is basically what we do here in LA is we usually have a – we do an event it's the last Saturday of the month. The start time is usually 10 AM. People start to line up. We ask for a $10 donation because we go out and buy all the food supplies and that usually covers the cost. Sometimes there's more that gets reinvested or sometimes we're short. The idea is everybody contributes that small amount that most people can contribute just to have that portion, that skin of the game. You enter, you write your name on a name tag or your social media handle, you're greeted by a greeter, volunteer, there's music playing, it's already a high energy atmosphere. Uh, there's multiple stations. You can go to the sandwich making station. The goal with the sandwich making station is to make a meal that you would actually want to eat or as if you're making it for somebody that you love or you care about. There's an inspiration station or a love note station is which is where all the stationery is, where's where all the brown paper bags are, it's where all the index cards are and it's where people are, you know, writing uh handwritten love notes and, you know, writing something as if they were was something they would want to read when they're having a shitty day. Or something that they, the note that they'd be writing to, to somebody that they kind of like love or care about. There's dance breaks. There's introduce yourself to a stranger break. There's all kind of stuff like that. And then there's a, there's the bagging station. That's where everything kind of comes together. Love note goes in last. And then we do a little bit of a grounding. You know, pause the party for a second. Myself or another one of the leaders kind of stands up and shares the brief origin of this and why we're all here. And the message is always like, look, this should be a catalyst for your, for you and your daily life. Always remember that it's up to you on the, taking the responsibility for your immediate surroundings. And, you know, the the whole idea is just to kind of serve that as a gateway to giving. And then for those people that are available, we do kind of a caravan down to, to Skid Row, which is our local hum- homeless community here, or, You know, as it's kind of growing, we're going to other places and just go and hand distribute the meal. So that's kind of the A to Z experience. You get to pitch in on the party. You get to actually roll your hands up, roll roll your sleeves up rather, and get your hands dirty. And then within a very short period of time, you actually get to see the look on the face and experience the person that's receiving your creation. And the intention is layered in at every portion of it. And the distribution portion is where it gets really transformational because you realize how little it actually takes to make a difference.
0: What would be your advice for someone else who wants to start something similar?
1: Look, we didn't plan any of this. We just kind of did what we thought was natural to us and we iterated along the way. And as long as it kept continued to be fruitful for us, we just kept it going. And, you know, as long as it's, and then we just iterated as, as, as we needed to. Right. so, Just do it, man, and just keep it going. And then as long as you you get people on board and enroll people into your vision, it will naturally evolve and take it as far as you can go. And eventually other people will reveal themselves and become part of your journey and want to help you out. You just kind of have to stay pure in your intent, and the universe will conspire to reveal all the puzzle pieces that you need to get to the next level.
0: Beautiful. Well, I just want to offer a few reflections, just having heard the whole story, I think for the first time, even though you and I know each other, and I've actually volunteered at a hashtag event, which is awesome and fun and different from any volunteering experience that I'd ever had. And I just think, you know, you did a great job of bridging play with hard work, right? Like as a child, that being your favorite activity, being outside and just playing. And when I think the average person thinks about volunteering, they don't necessarily see it as a fun thing, but you were able to bring that in. And then having the experiences with the sort of angels that came into your life and your mom and your therapist and Felicia and William and JD, it's like all of these people were kind of navigating you in this direction and it almost seems like your whole life was actually navigating you in this direction of bridging that connection between play and hard work and that ever important keep going muscle, which I would say is probably probably the most important thing in the whole equation is that entrepreneurial spirit of just keep going, consistency above all else, be process oriented as opposed to outcome oriented. So anyway, I just want to acknowledge you. AJ, for your commitment and for your courage in showing up and being curious and learning from your experiences and helping to bring people together in so many ways. Um, not only just hashtag, I also wanted to give a shout out to Hilltop Cafe, which is your mission-driven cafe in South LA. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um you know, the natural progression of, you know, in in my for-profit world was to create mission-driven concepts. So Hilltop is a cafe, a coffee shop that myself and my partner, Yanni, started back in the summer of 2018. You know, we had been in the restaurant business together for a while and we wanted to do something. We both grew up down there and wanted to put something there and saw the, the community changing and had this idea for, you know, a community space that was inclusive and welcoming of all people, that would hire from the local community, that would bring you know good quality food and coffee programs to an area that had majority fast food dining options, but then also would be a gathering space for local creatives and entrepreneurs and community organizers to work on their craft and their movements. So we opened our first one just as a kind of a tester, and we we're extremely successful. We actually opened our second one in Inglewood this past December. We partnered with actress uh, Issa Ray, who's uh, from down there as well, and has a really hit sh- uh, popular show on HBO called Insecure that's actually set mainly in Inglewood in South L.A. So, um, you know, again, the universe is kind of conspiring to, to kind of accelerate that. We're getting ready to open our third and our fourth locations as well. So... Yeah, very excited for that climb and that journey and uh, excited for all of the other things that we get to create.
0: I love it. Well, we appreciate you. We're inspired by you. Thanks again for coming on and and sharing your story. And I'll list all of the places where people can link with you and, and your various ventures in the show notes. Thank you, man. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you for listening to my interview with AJ Rilan of hashtag lunchbag. AJ is more living proof that you just don't need to have all the answers or all the money in the world to help people. All you have to do is start with whatever you have right now. I'm so grateful to AJ for sharing his journey on At the End of the Tunnel. Please make sure to check out the hashtag lunchback Instagram and or website to find out how you can host a hashtag lunchback event with your friends or company or community. Once things open back up, all of the links to everything AJ and I talked about are in the show notes at lightwatkins.com tunnel. And in the meantime, Make sure that you are subscribed to At the End of the Tunnel so you don't miss any more of these incredible stories about regular folks who've overcome all kinds of mental, emotional, and financial odds to start large and small movements that have helped to improve the lives of others. Also, please take 30 seconds to rate and review the podcast so we become more searchable and so that other people can discover these stories. And I'll see you next week at the end of the tunnel. Remember, new episodes are published each Wednesday. Okay, see you then, and thanks again for listening. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you wanna sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.